I'm Steve Govett. This is the TFL Podcast. We're back with episode 16. I say this every week because I'm so excited by the people and, and groups that I have on, and I say they're special, but those guys have never been special. These two guys are really most special. Next week, it'll be somebody more special than them, but these guys are super special and, and really hold a uh, significant place in my heart. I want to introduce uh, uh, two guys that uh, really brought me into the pro game uh, as, as friends and, and teammates and, and my coach, um, and we've evolved those relationships over the past 25 to 30 years now. But uh, Chris Bates, uh, head coach of the Archers, uh, former head coach of, of Princeton University and Drexel University, and now at Episcopal Academy in Philadelphia. Chris Bates, welcome to the TFL podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve. The illustrious Tony Resch joins us as well. Hall of Fame, National Lacrosse League coach, uh, right up there with the great Les Bartley and a number of other uh, people. But uh, Tony Resch, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. I've been waiting by my phone for quite a while, so I'm quite, <laughs> well, uh, quite happy it, to finally be here. I, I would say by popular demand, I had to reach out to you guys and, and make sure that, that I got you on the show. I want by just to start off uh, and set the tone for the show, by show of hands, how many people on this Zoom cast have been locked in a bus bathroom driving back <laughs> from New York? <laughs> This is where we're um, starting. Huh? We're going to start right there. there. I like it. All right. <laughs> right I, I right out it. of the box. You didn't put your hand up. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Because it wasn't the two of us. Coach Bates has his hand up. Yes, indeed. There were, and, the, and what you missed while you were in the bathroom was Johnny Nostrant up at the front of the bus on a microphone similar to this talking about the hair on the back of his wife. <laughs> do, you, do you or do you don't remember, Batesy, but – Obviously, Tony was Absolutely. at the front of the bus Absolutely. watching the whole thing. Gina, Gina, you got a hair on your back. What are you doing? And Gina was sitting right next to him. Nody's performances on those return trips from New York are <laughs> when you are thankful there were no cell phones and video capabilities because he would have had a hard time working around those. Nody wouldn't have been at Haverford for as long as he was if that had that been is, the case. That is true. Fellas, it's like I said, pleasure to have you. And and obviously, I, Batesy, I want to get into you and I met before you. We actually were teammates on the wings because you spent a season uh, with Dallas Elliott, uh with the Burnaby Lakers before I tried out for the wings, and uh, we became friends there. And there's a great concussion story that we'll get to later for you playing with the Burnaby Lakers in the WLA and your first experience in box lacrosse in Canada. But, uh, Batesy, who put the stick in your hand for the first time? How'd you, how did you start down the road before John Jay? How did you get into playing a little bit of lacrosse? I was the uh, typical multi-sport guy, but, uh, you know, I kind of like to bump into people and, uh, you know, lacrosse just seemed like the, uh, the natural fit. I remember a handful of coaches, well, for those of you, you know, I'm a 5'8 dude, so basketball was never going to be the future. Um, and I remember being at a basketball camp and a guy saying to me, you should really play lacrosse. Um, <laughs> I was usually in playing basketball. I was usually in foul trouble by, by halftime. I didn't agree with the refs even then, typically with calls. But a guy by the name of Peter Pagnuco, who ultimately went to Lafayette. My dad, both my parents worked in, at John Jay High School, and he, I remember having to catch him my back lawn. You know, he just came over, brought two sticks, and – 
uh, it just seemed to be a natural fit for me for, for a variety of reasons. So I still th stay in touch with Peter, which is fun. But, uh, you know, I couldn't hit a curveball. It's all the same old stories, right? I couldn't hit a curveball. Small strike uh, zone. T-Rash, yeah. how, how did you get in the game? Because I know your brother had a, played a pivotal role in that, and he was a little older. But, but how, how, did, how did you get into the game? So, uh, again, I'm a, older than you guys, so it was uh, my neck of the woods. It was football, basketball, baseball, and that was all anybody played. I was very fortunate that I have uh, five older siblings, three older brothers, and they went to Penn Charter, which is a private school in Philadelphia that fortunately just uh, happened to have a lacrosse team. There were really not many schools that even had lacrosse certainly no youth league. So I just kind of picked it up watching my brothers, you know, their broken stick in the corner and, you know, of the house. And, but until I got to ninth grade, I never really played any semblance of organized lacrosse. So uh, I came to it late, same thing. Failed baseball player was pretty much the, the standard guy playing lacrosse in those days. Um, but yeah, so my older brothers, I would go as a spectator and just running around on the sidelines, picking up sticks and and, uh, yeah, that's kind of through osmosis, I guess you would say. So you end up being a long pole, but ultimately you don't end up a goalie as the youngest of, of, of all the brothers. You don't end up a goalie. Yeah, um, that's, 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 I, that's usually how it works. But in those days, uh, you know, there wasn't enough lacrosse around that they were busy in the backyard. You're always kind of just in that season playing lacrosse, and then it was ready for, uh, you know, summer was everything, and then football – and basketball and then back to lacrosse so the kind of pummeling and it was whatever the season that was going on at that time I got pummeled in so it was uh not necessarily always in the goal and it's true you're not the best athlete in your marriage right is that true that is correct my, that uh, is that is a correct statement right better my better half uh I'm huge not a basketball great basketball player but I love the sport my wife uh, Mary scored a thousand points in high school four-year starter at Yale uh, captain, so yes, she clearly is uh, a <laughs> total, total, total stud. <laughs> yeah, you quickly though quickly admitted that, so I think you get you should score points for this. Yes, definite. Yes. And your son, not a bad player either. Uh, yeah, Patrick's it's... Patrick's having a pretty good run as a pro. When's he going to play indoor? Uh, he's been dabbling with the wings actually, and you know he's been sort of practice squad. He played a couple games right at the end of the season two seasons ago, and the wings have been dabbling since we all left. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean I, he loves it. He loves the guys. He he really likes the coaching staff. He just yeah, they of course uh, have a great pipeline from uh, up north. So yeah, for a for a guy who would be a transition or a defender, he's yeah, he's up against some really good good guys. So we need, we need some Dartmouth resort. guys in the league, Steve. See what you can do about some that. Some Dartmouth guys. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so uh, Tony, you walked into the to the locker room with the Wings as a, first time as an MILL player. Uh, what are your impressions? That you don't necessarily walk into a locker room. I remember, you know, practicing in Mickleton. There was no locker rooms, and and it was just an odd experience for a Canadian who came in. No showers. No, you know, I'm going to drive three hours home, and I stunk. But whatever. Um, what what was it like for you stepping in to play for the Wings kind of in the early '90s? Yeah, it was. I guess I would say, and maybe another way to answer who put a stick in my hand in the indoor version, it would certainly be Mike French, who was good friends with my older brother, Hank, and 
Um, they played lacrosse and basketball and local league. So when the wings started up, I was actually not in the area right the first season. So saw Mike in the off season and he invited me to try out. I, I literally was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've been to one game at the spectrum. I think when I was like 10 years old in that first version when, um, you know, Doug Favell was a Flyers player, but was all, you know, he's like the Blaze Reardon of his time. So that was the only fights. And um, so I really knew nothing about it, but I mean, just watched a little bit in that first season. I was like, I'd love to try it. And so we showed up and uh, we actually practiced in Maryland our first few years because most of the guys were coming from Baltimore, John Tucker and Brad Koch lived down there. And uh, so literally walked in, I didn't even know the Philadelphia guys. I didn't know Gary Martin that well, a little bit of club with those guys. So it was talk about just being thrown into the fire. But the, to me, the, the key figure outside of Mike French is Dave Evans. You know, at that point, it was almost all Americans just learning on the fly. And uh, we had the huge advantage of having Dave coming in from Vancouver. And again, I had no idea who Dave was or anything else, but I think we got that actual uh, coaching of what is box cross supposed to look like I think that was was such a huge first step for us in those early years and we found some success relatively quickly. Dave Evans who gets little credit for being one of the biggest pioneers in in the major indoor lacrosse league and the national lacrosse league and and has spent some time with the Vancouver Ravens when they're around and and then ultimately the stealth but Man, he was an icon in Philly from a, from the Philadelphia Wings perspective. And I do remember him going back because he's a Burnaby guy. He was a goalie in Burnaby. I remember him going back, and he would always be the MC at all the events for Burnaby Junior Lacrosse. And he would talk about this league that people were playing in. And then, you know, I ultimately got connected with guys like Kevin Alexander and a few others that, that would talk about the circus that this league was and the ex- – and playing in this, and I, I said to myself, I've got to find a way to make this happen. And then ultimately seeing it on TV and watching, you know, Detroit play and Gary and Paul and those guys, and and then the dream come true. And uh, Batesy, as we walk into a locker room, you know, with Tony as a coach, and I think you did it the year before. But talk about your experience walking in there. Well, I played for Dave Evans too. So, and interesting enough, I still have his playbook that we used back in 1990. I've saved it and just, it, it feels like a relic, but you know, just the personalities you walk in and, and, you know, again, don't be in a Mickleton and, and watching guys change in the corner. You're like, this is a, you know, this is professional. <laughs> this is prolic. Yeah. This is, Mickleton was pretty ass, nice you know. <laughs> um, but then, you know, the competitive, once the ball drops, then you're like, okay, this is the real deal. Like these are, these are serious, competitors who were fighting for a job and fighting essentially for a paycheck. So, um, you know, I felt lucky. It took me a couple of years to crack the lineup actually after going to Burnaby's when I became much more kind of a fixture. Um, and early on, just, you know, I remember Mike Page of the Penn guy, my first tryout, like, he's like, no, you pick one hand and stay on that. I had never seen it. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I had a little ax because I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't even get a try. I was living in New York city. I couldn't get a tryout for the saints. Um, I played club with all those guys, and I bumped in uh, on Manhattan Street to, to John Nugent, who was trying out for Philly. He was originally from Philly, and Frenchie, I, I FedExed a resume, a lacrosse resume to Frenchie. He's like, if you're crazy enough to come down here and want to travel, <laughs> have at it. We'll at least give you a shot. And sure enough, you know, that's kind of where it started. But T, so, uh, T you'll remember I, the, the story, T-Rex. jump in? 
real quick with us uh, speaking to Dave Evans. So I don't have like, I don't keep archives or anything, but I did find this one file. So here is, I don't know if you guys can see this, speaking of Dave Evans, this should be like <laughs> the, the wing's way because he wrote up, hand wrote that long ago, all the drills, some plays, and this is basically when I started coaching, this is all I had. <laughs> I had six years of playing experience as mostly a D guy. And I, this was like my Bible. So in a lot of ways, this is what's because I just stole everything he did, add a little bit as we went along and different coaches came in and were awesome. But uh, yeah, it was when I came across this, I was like, wow, this is like a true artifact of what the wings were founded on. Tony, you remember the, the great versatility, and I still tell this story. You can tell Batesy, Batesy, you got to be a lefty today. Batesy, you got to be you got to be a righty today. This game, you're playing righty. And Batesy would be like, okay. He freaking put a stick in his left hand. I had never seen it before. I didn't know. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that guy's good. He's a righty today. What are you talking about? And it was it was amazing. But Batesy was the most versatile player on, on the team. But, but Chris – Talk about the experience in Burnaby because you got this conky. Back in the day, we just called it your bell was rung and you just kept playing. And I don't think you remembered most of that summer after that. No, that that was – I learned a lot, let's just say. And there were some, some trials and tribulations. Uh, I remember the one game where I was going to, to Vail the next day or two days later, and we were in – I forget what, what arena we were in. And I looked out and I realized that there were – four other dudes that were my size. And I'm like, all right, here it comes. Like, here it comes. Like, this is my come to, come to understanding what this is about because there was nobody to protect me. Like, there was no – and, you know, my game offensively, I just have to keep moving because if you catch me, I'm in trouble, um, you know, because I was 175 pounds soaking wet. Um, but, yeah, that one game, you tried at some point to, to protect me, but I got one square between the eyes <laughs> – and the embarrassing thing was I had the muskrat double black eyes for like a week. I'm like, I can take it in a bunch, but I got to look like an ass for like you know, two weeks. But I remember, uh, what was his name? Lindsey Moffitt? Does that, does that Derek name? Moffitt. Whatever his first name, Moffitt. Derek Moffitt. Derek Moffitt, I'm sorry, yeah. I remember walking in between periods, and he was my, you know, one of my buddies on the team. And I remember looking at him, I'm like, I have no idea where my locker is. Like, just – I wasn't going to tell anybody because I wanted to keep playing – but I'm like, just show me, like, I'm, I'm, you know, put my big toe, and I'm like, I don't know where to go at this point. So I, I knew I had a bit, a bit of an issue at that point. And Derek Moffat, Derek Moffat went on the Ricky Lake show. Ended up this is like you know the old shows where you separate your girlfriend and your. He went on this show with this girlfriend, Ricky Lake, and he is not the father. I just want you to know that was the conclusion of the show. T Rush, we had a tryout. Steve Govett shows up for the first tryout and to set the stage because you were the coach of the team. You're the head coach, but you didn't get the credit for the head coach because Mike French had to be the head coach on paper, but never showed up to a single event except for the party at the Radnor Hotel. So, but coaching wise, you start your career as you're a coach, not coach. Correct. And the whole thing, I can't remember the exact timeline, but Mike Page, uh, Bates, you mentioned him earlier, was the assistant coach, obvious heir apparent. And then for family reasons, I think his wife got a great opportunity outside the area. All of a sudden we were coachless. I was planning on, I thought I had one more year in me. Um, and then suddenly 
I guess it was Mike came to me eventually and said, what do you think about coaching? And again, you know, playing's better, more fun, but I thought oh, it's an opportunity to stay involved with the team a little bit longer. But then the league told him like, there's no way we can take, we're going to look like the most rinky dink league ever. I'm like, yeah, cause oh. that was the only thing to make him look rinky dink. <laughs> I was like, that's all you're worried about. Um, so they said, okay, we're going to name Mike the head coach. And quite honestly, Mike, right from the get go was like, yeah, I'm not going to be doing, I'll give you my two cents here and there and I'll, but you'll be in charge. So GT came on to, to help out. And uh, yeah, so from all intents and purposes, I was the coach from day one, although officially I was not. Mike French was our championship Steve, coach. Steve Govett shows up first day of camp. And I've never asked this question of a guest talk about my game because I know what's coming. But I I mean, I it was the greatest thing. You had two weekends to make the team. You had basically four practices. You showed up and it was like, okay, have at it. And your style was literally you rolled the ball out and said, Okay, make the team. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so, and you just wanted to see guys play. Well, I I would I would term that as I wanted to see the competitive side of every guy, right? <laughs> I was not a walkthrough guy. I was not a, I just, I mean, that was how we were raised too. We learned on the job. We learned at one practice a week uh, throughout my career. So it's kind of what I knew was to let guys scrap as much as they could, give them as many competitive situations as we could and see which guys continued to uh, kind of show their toughness and <clears throat> skill. So. And I will say, Steve, I, I've heard you in other telecasts make sort of teasing yourself, but that's what a great job our coaching staff did. You were kind of a skill guy for us, shows, <laughs> which kind of shows how we were filling in with. Uh, <laughs> we must have of... sucked. <laughs> that's what I'm you saying. must and have been won... thin on the skill. That's what I'm saying. Count, and we won with you as a skill argument, guy. So. Anybody wants a second Bates, opinion. Batesy, I literally showed up in your house, and I forget where you live, but but it was this big giant house and big old giant house, and I ended up staying the night because you know, God forbid, you get a hotel room or something, and they literally it was like. Yeah, you show up. Here's when the tryouts are, and I get the letter, and I'm all excited. I'm showing up. Mike French invites me to come out, and you know, and I stayed at your place for for two weekends in a row. And and uh, man, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. This is this we get to play here. Yeah. So Steve, I've I've always wondered about the timing of that. So when Dave was running the show, because he was out here, and you know, he worked when he got back home. Um, he was a bit of a mother hen, you know driving the guys around yeah. and taking care of the guys. So did you, I, I basically, I remember telling Dallas specifically, like, I am not picking you up, taking you anywhere. So, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to do that with Dallas. Um, but did you, you know, who knows where you're going to pick Dallas up from? That was the problem. Right. Did you, you guys never lived with Dallas? So if you want to go there, I got a story <laughs> or two for that. I listen, I started, I played, you know, my illustrious college career at Radford University where they, they dropped the program. So my records will never be broken. It's actually a perfect scenario for me. Um, at the, thanks. It's, it's like, it's like legendary status. This is how you get to be a TFL. So the, the whole point of, of this is I go to this, I reached out and as I was at Radford, I had a buddy that went to Herkimer 
and then came down and and so he was all into lacrosse and we drove up in one of our room you know, one of the teammates cars and we went up to a game in Philly at the Spectrum and and Dave Evans had gotten me tickets and I sat up and this is like 92 91 92 and and it was we sat way up in the nosebleeds in the spectrum and the place is jam-packed and you know the cheesesteaks and the whole thing right and you know i'm a dumb canadian kid from you know going to school in virginia i go to the big city and we're in philly and there's cheesesteaks and then there's sixteen thousand people and i i distinctly remember it was either lou delegati or chris flynn getting a scuffle in the corner and the turf came off the ice and, like, these guys are literally fighting each other on the ice because the turf had folded over and, like, they're expo- they're standing on the ice taking swings at each other. And they're playing the Pittsburgh Bulls. And I knew a few guys on the Bulls and Brian Nicola and John Wilson were on there. And so, like, I, I had known these people. And I'm like, man, I can play here. I, I play with these guys and against these guys. So I have the, I can play with these guys. And, and there, there was just that kind of level of circus nature that I was like, man, this is all me. And, and so two years later, I'm like trying to find a way I'm, I'm reaching out to Dallas and I, I know Gary and Paul and I need to get on this team. And so that, so Dallas, I guess, goes to bat for me with Frenchie and says, Hey, you know what, you got to get this knucklehead on your team. He, you know, he might help you out a little bit. So anyway, that's how that started. And Basie had played, with uh with dallas right up in burnaby and we ended up connecting and so there was a place for me to flop for a night or two to to be able to go to tryouts so that i was living in washington dc at the time driving up you know two and a half three hours to go to practice but uh, it was easy easy on the weekends wednesday nights were a little tougher when uh, you used to have to drive home after practice and go to work the next day and practice ended at 11. And, uh, and you're driving back three hours, going to work the next day. It was, it, I, and I loved every minute of it. You know, I didn't keep many jobs then, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah. We did the, uh, reverse commute. As I said, we started in Edgewood, Maryland. So we would go down there. The Baltimore guys would be laughing at us as we got in the car at 11 o'clock, heading home to the Philadelphia wings. Uh, but it was a blast. And I, you reminded me with the, uh, turf rolling up the other great, um, early, season they used to move the turf around from venue to venue because they didn't each building have its own so uh one game in my maybe my second year they forgot to ship the goals so <laughs> we used hockey goals six by four so i remember this story and it was and ted sawicki who's an unbelievable goalie so they actually made it look fairly respectable although i did score on ted sawicki so there you go. Claim to fame. Nobody knows it was on a six by four goal. But. <laughs> on a hockey goal. Cali BBQ is proud to be an official sponsor of your San Diego Seals. Buy our slow smoked barbecue at any Seals home game or online anytime at www.calibbq.media. You guys, are, you know, like, how many pro guys? from Ivy League schools made it into the into the MILL at the time, your era. Not very many, right? Andy Towers, maybe? Really yeah, the early, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, a couple of Cornell guys were New York guys, like the Cummings brothers were Saints. Uh, but no, it was pretty, definitely pretty thin. Yeah, you guys Reese, are all too smart. John Reese had a few couple years maybe with the Saints also. Um, I have recently spent a lot of time with John Reese. 
I'm shocked he didn't play more lacrosse in the in the major indoor lacrosse league because he certainly had a mentality for it. Oh, he was – I mean, he was an <laughs> unbelievable football player. He was tailor-made. I don't honestly know. He, he just never quite found his uh, – found his stride i guess indoor i want you to do something because we're going to cut a clip of this and i'm going to send it to a very special person tell me about joe tsai as a lacrosse player and be honest yeah Yeah. be honest um he was an excellent teammate (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, i I honestly again in those days you just sort of guys came on the team and i was as i said i started in ninth grade so it wasn't like i've been playing my whole life so Joe was a guy that picked it up late, and um, I don't even know if we had a JV per se, but he was on the team and young guy working hard. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, he wasn't necessarily getting major minutes by any stretch, but he was an awesome guy and great part of the team. He loves the game, no, no question. question. And, 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 and transitioning, transitioning to, to you know another passion of his, which is the PLL, and you guys had a great uh, run in the, in the bubble over the course of the last uh, few weeks or months. Um, but the archers had a real shot came down to a tough game at the end, but, uh, uh, I loved your team, man. It was a ton of fun to watch. And how do you think Grant Amit uh, ends up playing box? Is he, is, can he play indoor lacrosse? Interesting, right? I mean, I think you look at guys, I remember Ryan Boyle playing for the wings and I was always impressed just with Ryan's toughness, right? I mean, he just, he wasn't backing down from anybody. You know, and I'm watching an Archer's game last night, and, and Grant's, you know, I don't know who he's going against. I think it's an Atlas defenseman. But he's, you know, as quick as he is, you know, he wasn't afraid to sort of post up on the island. And, you know, you can't you can't teach that vision either, man. Like, that's, you know, that's, that's something pretty unique. So he's probably a buck 60 soaking wet. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? He's a pretty tough kid. I wouldn't put it past him. He was good. There's a lot of guys I would love to see playing that, obviously, from that league. And, and uh, first of all, I thought you guys did a great job putting that team together, and it was a ton of fun to watch. And certainly I think everybody uh, in the lacrosse world in the U.S. and Canada for those two weeks in July was glued to their televisions and got uh, a pretty intimate uh, understanding of what it means to be uh, a part of, of what is and is becoming rapidly a, a great league to play in. And obviously you guys can attest to a great league to coach in. Yeah. So, Steve, can I ask you a quick question? Do you, I mean, it's obviously the way I mentioned it a little while ago, it was all Americans for a while and then over however many years transitioned to what it is now, primarily Canadian. Is there still a place for a larger number of Americans or do they have to be the right guy? Do they have to be in the right situation? Well, that's always true, I guess, in terms of opportunities. It's been pretty tough and that's from a distance i'm obviously not anywhere close to what you are in terms of what rosters up and down look like yeah, look like look i think what's interesting right now is the growth of the growth of us boxla and a lot of kids are starting to play the game and just being comfortable like you guys said i, I think when most guys came into the league at least in our era and then you know maybe subsequently afterwards that you know, I drafted Matt Donowski in the first round. The kid had never been inside an arena in his life, right? And Ned Crotty, same, thri- th- same thing. I mean, if you go back and, and look at some of the guys that were our contemporaries that were they, – they had never seen a box lacrosse game and, and going in and playing for the first time, um, that was their exposure. And when you had four practices to figure it out, you know, a guy like Jake Berge – 
figuring out as quickly as he did and taking to it as fast as he did, uh, you know, was was a, an unbelievable thing. But a guy like Jay Bear took him a while, right? And and he wasn't great when we first drafted him, Tony. And and ultimately, he turned into a really good player that you know his career was shut, you know, was was cut short a little bit, you know. And 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 then the you know Jamie Hanford, who would have played you know for a thousand years because he liked to shower with all the other guys, but. You know, at the end of the day, you know, Dave Stilly, same thing. So when we talk about kids playing right now, there's a lot of kids that are picking the game up at a much, much younger age level, right? And and even my son, who is currently a, a Delaware player, you know, he's University of Delaware, he's, he's been playing box his whole life. And so when you say multi-sport athlete, I actually started thinking multi-sport athlete when you played outdoor, it was a different skill set than, than box. And so these kids that are playing both outdoor and box lacrosse, uh, field and box or wh- whatever the case may be or whatever you want to call it uh, they're playing two different sports and so they became multi-sport athletes because the indoor game is a lot like basketball and and so you know they're dedicating themselves to a skill set but they were playing both so now you see with expansion I think there's going to be a ton more American players and uh, more American players are going to have access but the situation's got to be right, and they've got to dedicate themselves to it because, you know, and I think the opportunities are presenting themselves now, especially with the PLL and the scenario that they're in, the National Lacrosse League that we're in. You know, ultimately, you can see guys starting to make a full-time wage out of playing in both leagues. And and that's really going to start to set the stage uh, for kids coming into this game and, and being able to make a living out of lacrosse. You look at a kid like Trevor Baptiste, right, who is doing all sorts of work and teaching face-offs and, and teaching kids how to play the game and, and clearly is a leader on the diversity side of the game. You know, this is a kid that people are watching. He's playing box and he's having a great success in boxing. And, and now he's, you know, he's playing in, in you know, for, for the Atlas and he's having great success there. I think the opportunities are going to start to grow for these guys. So that's me going off on a tangent talking about what I think for the growth of the game, but uh, it's it's got a lot to do with expansion and guys like Bob Hamley who just got the job in in Dallas, who's been with 3D in Georgia for a long time. You know, he's a Canadian guy that picked a lot of Canadians to play for his team in Arizona in the early 2000s, but has now transitioned his thought because of his 3D experience and his ability to teach kids in the U.S. now goes to Dallas and will have an eye on a lot of American players. And I can tell you there's a ton of these kids playing in college box leagues that Matt Brown's putting together in Colorado. Oliver Marty, uh, another, by the way, another um, Brown Ivy League guy that played in the league. But he's in Connecticut, right, and he's doing these things. You know, uh, Andy Towers getting involved with, the, with you know, the New England guys and, and – or sorry, the New York Riptide as a scout. I think you're starting to see a re – uh, blending, if you will, of the days when you guys were involved with us. And it, it comes to my next question is the tension between Canadians and Americans as as we played Buffalo a number of times and created a great rivalry, but even so much in tryouts and st- different styles, right? That uh, Tom Marichek, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, talked about how GT Corrigan didn't like him and he had to sit out the first game because he missed a practice or went to a wedding or something and GT didn't want him to play. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's the way it went down, Tommy, but whatever. Um, anyway, but there was a tension. So talk about that a little bit. Did you guys see that, feel that? How did you navigate that as a coach and then, you know, Chris as a player? I think early on, I mean, just the difference in the game, right? The off ball, what you could do off ball, I mean, still to this day, you know, I, I'm amazed, right? I mean, 
I think it's been curtailed a little bit, but I have a picture of me, you know, all five eight of me, like ready to bang on Peter Park's hip. Right? <laughs> off ball, you could just beat. You could literally just whack the hell out of somebody off ball, right? And for us growing up, you're like, wait, you can't do that. Like you were a gnat. You were a gnat on Peter Park. Peter Park was like six six. <laughs> he was oh yeah, huge. giant man. He looked like I, RoboCop. But what I am I going to do? Wait for him to make it like, I'm going to, I got to, I got to take the fight to him. Right. But yeah, the point being, I, I, there's just a different mentality. And you know, you guys say it like your, your, your flip has to, or your switch has to flip when you get inside because there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. And it's, you know, there's some survival, but I think that, you know, the difference is growing up. Like you've, you've mentally got to be prepared for that. And I think so, there's the, the natural tension as a result was, was palpable. Like it just was a different style. So yeah. the Americans had to learn it. So, um, go ahead, Tony. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, Chris, but I'm I'm going back to your. I'm going to come to your question in a second. But when you were talking about that, uh, sort of how do more Americans get into it? So I'm actually thinking back in time and the multi, when you use the term multi-sport athlete. I as I think about the guys that were um, the grinders um, that we always seem to have an abundance of they were multi-sport athletes in the true, like they played football, they played basketball. So indoor was in a weird way, almost closer. I played football. So I was used to contact. I was used to bump and run. And so in a weird way that, and I think might almost be a better training for indoor lacrosse along with playing some lacrosse, you know what I mean? Rather than field lacrosse doesn't do a whole lot for you in learning indoor. I do remember very vividly, and Chris, you may remember this as well, but I remember a huddle at one point in the tryout process with the Wings. And Tony, you said, and I, I, I will always remember this. I've used it many, many times. I've told young American players that have come into uh, to training camps for the last 25 years this, that you can't prepare for a National Lacrosse League training camp by working out, by running on the street. It was like you would have to train in a washing machine. And you used to, used to say that, that you used to have to train in a washing machine to prepare for this. So you better get up to speed pretty quick. Yeah. So, uh, you it's know. Because, you know, you can't duplicate those all the, just like Batesy was saying, all those collisions. And the thing I loved about it early on was, and especially as a defenseman in those early days, I'm that old that we ran, you played offense, you played defense, and then you came off that, it was constant giving and taking. Like you got blasted on picks, you got to blast people on picks, you got, it was the physicality was just unbelievable. That's why I just, from the get go, I was like, I could, I can enjoy this in a weird way, you know, with all the, <laughs> the, the, process was the skill part wasn't, wasn't <laughs> happening. So the physical part was, was enjoyable. I was going to say the trial process was always, you're taking your life in your hands because guys that were trying to make the team who certainly weren't going to put the ball in the back of the net didn't know the rules. So you're getting gooned by the boards. You know, it was smart. After a little while, Tony would pull you out. Like, All right, you're like, we don't need to subject you guys to, to some of the, you know, some of these rookies that are trying to, shenanigans. Yeah. Like, you know, I can name some guys where, you know, you, you see it in hockey games when somebody takes a run and you're like, that's just nuts. Like, one thing about blowing up a pick, there's another thing about putting your head down and getting blasted from behind into yeah. the boards. Well, the one thing the American guys, I, I, I will, you guys talked about it already, but American guys would never take very kindly to 
a hard pick off ball. And so the D guy would hit you, and then you'd go down and you'd be playing defense, and the offensive guy would start hitting you and cross-checking you. It's like, you can't do that. I can do it to you. You can't do it to me. And so – but the, you talked – Tony, you touched on it a little bit, but there was a core group of guys, and I've had – look, I had – uh, Frenchie and Gabe's and Raj and and those guys. I've had Jalbert and Hanford and 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 uh, and I had Tony Re- or sorry, I had I had uh, Tommy Marichek and Jake Bergion not too long ago. Uh, but there was a core group of guys, and you called them grinders, and we kind of had we had a name for ourselves, and we took great pride in that grinder. But talk about that core group of guys, because a lot of guys that should be recognized in that group. Um, and by the way, we're going to talk about Gabby Rowe trying to hit me with his helmet after a fight in one of those training camp sessions. But yeah, I told yeah. that story last time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talk about I, the core group. It's interesting because I go that far back. I mean, you guys are youngsters, but. I was, I have a couple team photos that, you know, are around and even going back to the first two championship games or teams, 89 and 90, right? And you got Gabes and Flinner and Gary Martin. And, but then there were Steve McGrath and John McGinney, Mark Lasico, right? So they're the, the grinders, the other guys, right? You have your still needed your John Tuckers and Brad Kotzes, right? So then that's the first couple championships. And Dave was smart enough to always get a Canadian goalie, which was, again, way ahead of his time. Helpful. Out of his time. And then when you guys come in, it's now it becomes, you know, Volks and Billy Miller and Batesy and Mac and O'Grady and Rogers and Steve Govett and, right? And that's that core carries us to two championships, right? And then, again, we always had a, a great goalie. We put the Gates on top of that, the Marichek on top of that, a Kevin Finneran. But those core groups, and then moving forward, you guys all abandoned me for the most part. And now it's Plaza, <laughs> Stilly, Oglesby, um, you know, Adam Yor comes in, Peter Jacobs, Tom Slate, Jake Berge arrives then. And I'm really proud of this part that we really kind of have to start all over again. And then we, by some small miracle, in 2001, Tom Fair comes in, Dan Radeball, Jay Jalbert, Booger. Tom Ryan, John Gagliardi, right? And we we were able to kind of, because the system carried on almost from what Dave, we talked about that being the godfather of the wings that sort of carried that through. And when we had those really good guys who did all the dirty work and allowed the, you know, the top guys to do what they did and always with Dallas or a Dwight in the back doing what they have to do, to me, that was sort of the, the magic uh, formula. Sometimes does the word has changed, but does the word ethos, Chris, for the Philadelphia Wings under Tony, does ethos like come to the forefront? And that's the word that I always think of when I think of Tony Rush coaching. Is there was an ethos on that team, and and that's why it carried through way beyond just the players that played on that team. No, I think that's that's well said, and you know that's the 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 what makes. The wing special, what makes Tony a Hall of Fame coach, right? I mean, I think everybody knew – you knew what your role was, right? And if you stepped out of your role, you know, not only – a coach's staff almost didn't have to say something because the leaders of the team were that first line of defense where if you were late, if you were five minutes late for a practice, you know, Scott Gabrielson's like, hey, sleep at home. Like, you know, the business <laughs> has started. It's time to go. So the messaging you got very early was – we're here to win this thing, and if, if you're going to be part of it, you're going to you're going to bring something unique. So, but the ethos piece is number one: you're the, you're setting your sights on a championship first and foremost. 
and whatever whatever that means, whatever role you're going to take uh, and how that group of guys is going to come together is, is an ongoing process. But when you start with that as a goal in mind, you got you to you fall in line and figure out how you're going to get there. Right? You and think he was a Hall of Fame coach, but do you think he had a Hall of Fame wardrobe on the bench? <laughs> like, you better be careful. Mary's <laughs> right, right inside. So, <laughs> but, she told me to wear, I wore. So. That's, that's what Danny Stroop always used to say. He goes, he would open his, he would open his bag when he got on the road in the, in the hotel room to find out what he was wearing. Yep, absolutely. I like the Mr. <laughs> potato Head tie. I still remember that one. I like the no tie, button up. Flower shirt, champagne from uh, whatever championship. But I, Steve, can I? I'm sorry to go backwards again, but I do. You guys really brought up a good point, and I, I mentioned earlier the kind of odd circumstances that even got me the opportunity to coach. Because I think back, and I'm like, what in the world were they thinking? Because I literally at that point had about two years of high school lacrosse coaching. That was my resume. <laughs> period. So, and I look back, I'm like, did they really just sort of let me? But the, the huge advantage that I had was that leadership group, you know. It was having Gabes and Flinner and then new guys like you guys coming in and buying in right away that whatever. I'm sure I had my moments where I was, they were like, what is he going on about? And those guys would say, like, it's all right, just, just hang in there. Because all, all I could do was coach the way I thought that – you know, as a player, I, I was still thinking as a player, right? And we had guys that just were just – all they wanted to do was win and compete. And so it was – I I don't know – I don't know if – I know you remember this, but – and I told this story the other day, but one of, the, one of my favorite tactics was 20 guys on the roster, 15 guys played. And five guys were sitting out, but that meant you had five uh, – you had – a group of five guys that were a line that were playing in scrimmages and practices. And they knew because you posted the roster pre-practice on Wednesday nights, they knew they weren't playing and literally they were the hardest working guys and they were the biggest dicks on the field. If you weren't playing, you were slashing people, you were whacking people. Everybody was trying to make, you know, a place for themselves in the, you were trying out for the next game. And I thought it was always genius because I sat out a few times and ultimately it was like, I'm not doing that again. And I would beat the piss out of the guy that was in my spot i look back and i feel guilty because i you we used to have and dave did it too but you guys just because we had so many guys they had to learn when we started playing teams like buffalo and then later on toronto we were so far behind that i just you guys would just be mauling each other all day every day which is why we had so many scraps and practices because it was just we had to do it live in order to be, have any chance once we got to the weekends. So it was. We also uh, did the one-on-one ground ball in the corner every every week. would look at me and he knew I was an easy target. Like all I got to do is, is say a few words, and then we would have at it. You know, fighting to the death for a ground ball, and then running the length of the field and doing a one-on-one. And it was like the tone is set. Like this is not a walkthrough. This is, you know, this is go time. It was one of my favorite drills with the breakaways where you had a chaser. We did it every practice and it was death on both sides. Cause if you didn't catch the guy, you sucked. And if you, if you didn't score, you sucked. So 
And the guy was pissed off. Have you caught him and checked him? Yeah, it was, the whole thing was, uh, was I mean, it was pure genius. It just pitted us against each other. Basically, yeah, just John created. Boy always complained about the full field one on ones to this day. She's like, what was that? Shadow <laughs> to mid floor and then maul each other for the rest of the leg. Oh boy, I did it again. Look at this. We're going long. Um, another great group. Talking to these guys is fantastic. But uh, check us out next week. You'll get part two uh, of Tony Resch and Chris Bates on the TFL podcast. Thanks for joining us.